Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Music is the one thing that we all understand that we don't understand. A film score, also sometimes called background score, background music, movie soundtrack, film music, or incidental music, is original music written specifically to accompany a film. And we are at the River Run International Film Festival in Winston-Salem, and we just saw Score, which is, surprisingly, the director, I went last night and O'Toole went today, but the director last night said he thought somebody would have done this movie already, and he waited five years to see if someone was going to do it, and he comes out of news. He does not come out of the movie industry, and he just so loves Scores that he just decided he was going to do this movie. And, you know, as I was watching the documentary, I was wondering who scored the documentary. (laughs) You know, it's a tall order. Music being the emotional language of a film. Well, and interesting, somebody asked him in the Q&A afterward uh, if the score of the movie was going to be available. And he said, yes, they would be selling it on Amazon (laughs) June 11th that when the movie actually comes out. How funny is that, right? You know, watching the people who know how to score a movie score a movie, to me, it's like watching a magician cut someone in half. There's a scene in the documentary where one of the few female composers they show, she's watching the movie silently, and then she's playing on the piano, composing out of her head music to accompany the film. I don't know how they do it. Well, what's great about this film is the fact that you get to go back in time to some of the great films that you haven't watched in years and then see some of the tidbits around scoring it. But the negative about this film, and I'm going to use that word, negative, is the fact that he starts he starts historically at the turn of the 20th century when um, there was silent film. He begins to talk about the history, and then he jumps to clearly his personal <laughs> lifetime of favorite films. So he misses tons of films. And one of them that I'm just going to mention that comes to mind is Fantasia, which oh. was scored and directed and, and, the, and, and um, the orchestrated by, uh, by Stokowski, who was one of the great directors ever, who was head of the um, American Symphony. You can't talk about scoring a film when there's nobody in film school that doesn't study Stokowski when they're talking about scoring a film. So, and I don't think he'd ever seen it. You know, so somebody actually asked the question, you know, there were a number of films missing from this. And he said, well, we tried to get everybody we could. So he only wanted to talk to living uh, people who, who write music for film. And I think that was a mistake. But secondly, there were no women-oriented films that he used mm-hmm. in scoring. And in some of the classic rom-coms, for example, the music is so critical to the success of those films that I felt it was, I felt it was missing rather than an oversight or, you know, you know how, did you see any of that? It's very true. I mean, the yeah. movies they reference, right. their music is iconic, Jaws without the theme to boom, Jaws boom, boom. would not be Jaws. And that was a very funny... Even I can sing now. <laughs> Those three notes. That was a very funny scene with John Williams it working was. with Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And John Williams saying, you know, it's just a two-note song. Yeah. And the other composer saying there's a lot more to the Jaws theme than two notes. But there was a woman at our Q&A. She said, you know, she goes, great job. But to your point, Hollister, she said, you know, sometimes I feel like music in a movie is trying to manipulate me. And it's so overt that I think it's masking weak story structure. And I thought about the podcast that we did on, I think it was Arrival, where you said you didn't like the music. You I thought intruded it was too much. in the conversation to me. Mm-hmm. And I've also told you many times on our podcast 
that if I notice the music, I feel like they did too much, you know. And a composer on our panel said that very thing. Uh, he said, you don't uh, what? <laughs> yes. You share the same opinion <laughs> there with you the professionals. Go. <laughs> The movies covered in this documentary definitely skew towards Star Wars and 2001 A Space Odyssey and, you know, what you and I might call more typically male movies. I think also he should change the title. From score? Well, score, everybody thinks it's a basketball game or a baseball game and you score, you know. (laughs) I think the title needs to more define what it is or people are not going to sort of flock to this, but... The topic, people are yearning for this topic to be walked through. And so every time there was a change in in where he was going next with the film, you couldn't wait to see what you were going to learn because every every scene told me something that was interesting. Mm-hmm. I just feel that it didn't tell the scoring story of the history of scoring in in film to today. And I don't think it covered enough of the movies that were available. It is definitely a big topic, but a scene that I particularly appreciated was Christopher Reeve. Because you hear Superman, a lot, yeah. Superman, you hear a lot about some of the wise actors like Jack Nicholson. The first person they'll befriend on a set is the editor, if the editor's present, because he knows they can make or break how he looks, how he sounds in a movie. But especially in these big tentpole blockbusters, the music makes or breaks a lot of these actors' mm-hmm. careers. And Christopher Reeve just says point blank. Superman without the theme music can't fly. <laughs> he would have just, just he, taken he, well, a he was, he's Well, he was a very smart man, and he was very articulate in his description of it. Bond. James Bond. The other thing that really came through to me that I hadn't thought of is uh, scoring is very private. You know, whoever's in, you know, now he may have a team around him, like, you know, like... Uh, like some of the people who did Beauty and the Beast. I mean, there may be a lot of people working with him, but it's very private. Now, the director picks somebody, talks about what they're looking to evoke, and then leaves them to it. I feel like it would be, okay, go buy me a house, decorate it, and then uh, I'll I'll move in Mm -hmm. and move me in, and then I'll show up with keys in hand. (laughs) That person would be so anxious because how do you possibly know... Whether you're even on the right track, because they don't just show them tidbits along the way, although they they do. And I thought that really hit home to me, that unlike a director with a cinematographer, that they were looking at dailies and they're, you know, it's, I think it's a really, really hard job. And they talked about it. Didn't you love it when some of them were saying they would see the poster for the movie? I laughed out loud. Wait, what? Yeah. The time pressure these guys are under where they're driving home in LA. They look up and there's a huge billboard of the new Tom Cruise movie. And they're like coming out in August and they're like, there's no music yet. You know, they drive a little Pressure, pressure. And then a couple of times people said that, you know, the studio had called them or whatever and said, look, just so you know, this music is going to make or break this film. Don't mm-hmm. tell somebody that before they're going to create. Oh, like Can when, you imagine? No, when Steven Soderbergh gave that countdown clock to his composer that looked like a ticking time bomb on the poor guy's desk about how many days he had left to score right, an right. entire movie. The other analogy I wanted to use for it would be if a screenwriter was told, okay, we're going to start shooting two weeks from next Thursday, and here are the 17 people in the film, and here's what we want the film to be about. Now, write it all up, and we'll meet you there the day before shoot starts. I'm sure a lot of writers would tell you it feels like that. <laughs> the rewrites. Yeah, you know. exactly. The creativity of these people where they can look 
at a variety of really defunct instruments. You know, the toy piano know, that was we funny, in this yeah. documentary. Or what blew me away, too, was when they go to record the music, these studio musicians have never seen the music. They just record oh, they just it. Exactly. You know, they're the best sight readers in the industry. Sometimes, by the way, only one take. One take, because, again, time pressures, budgetary pressures... And where that one composer said, you know, okay, this is the sound I want. Can the strings play it? And they said, you know what? Don't use a bow. Can you use your fingernails and run your fingernails over the strings? And the guy who just cut his fingernails that morning is not one hand of camp. There goes his job. You know, hope he's union. But the innovative sounds that they create, and it's funny because when you heard some of the music divorced from the images, I couldn't have placed it. And then you realize, oh, this is what made the shower scene in Psycho. The other fun thing about it is that it takes us into the Abbey Road studio, for example, and just like when we saw the Beach Boys movie um, that sort of walked through the, the taping and the writing of Brian Williams' greatest tunes, and we went into the studio and we saw footage from that studio, Abbey Road studio, where some of the best music, not just, you know, not for film, but in general and life has come out, and to know that each conductor that goes in there wants the room set up differently because they f- hear the sound differently based on how the room is set up. And I'm like, well, it's funny because you're very attuned to that stuff. And I'm like, you know, I'm, oh, tool, it sounds fine to me. What's your problem? <laughs> you know? uh, but setting it up is really, really important. And I thought that was great. I thought it was so it was fun to be in there. So true. And that last scene from E.T. where John Williams oh, is Did you want to see E.T. again? I did oh. because when you really think about the music, they said, okay, this could have been a very sad scene because E.T. is in his little spaceship and he's going home and all the kids are on the you know they've got the bicycle and they're saying goodbye and you see Elliot's face and they said he could have scored it to be a really sad moment but instead he used triumphant music mm-hmm. so you see the sad looks on their faces mission accomplished I think mission is the accomplished yeah. Elliot got him home yeah and I thought wow they really are affecting the whole tone of a movie there are very few movies that he shows and he brings the music into because he's bringing in the highlight music moments from those major major movies There's very few that you don't want to go back and see again. And then I realized that some of those films, E.T. being one of them, you need to see it on the large screen. And I like that they're now starting to bring major movies of old back, you know, to the large screen. And in fact, here at the festival, did you see hear what they're bringing that they're doing next week? They were playing Willy Wonka. (laughs) And the Chocolate Factory. Mm -hmm. So they're bringing, you know, I, I, I love that this film festival does that. They're bringing back films of old just, and for families to come and see. And those two are sold out, I might add. But favorite moment. Oh, I'll, why don't I give you mine? <laughs> what was your favorite uh, okay, moment? Okay, you touched on it, but I want to tell, I want to tell our listeners. There's the time when this guy who's clearly paid millions and millions of dollars, I think he's an Academy Award winner or whatever, uh, he's scoring a film and he goes into some old toy store or something and he sees a child's piano mm-hmm. and he says, but it was $65. Like, that's a lot of money. And I'm thinking, what? <gasps> for, you know, to score a film for millions of dollars, he takes it home, he writes the music and, and tapes it from that and then he returns it. <laughs> I know. It's like people buying dresses, wearing them, and then taking them back the next day. I thought it was wonderful. Well, plus he said he just kept filling up his whole studio space with instruments. And then his team would say, okay, enough with the collecting of instruments. We have nowhere to put our stuff. It was great. And they would yeah. There are moments in there you're, you feel like you've been let in to an inner sanctum of a group of people that you could never touch. Because when you see how they write this music and the pressure they're under... 
it's really it was really beautiful to watch. I loved the composer who said that music is really the one art form that you cannot touch. It's not sculpture, it's not painting, you can't put your finger on it. It's affecting the molecules of air and how they hit our eardrum. And then they interviewed a psychologist who said, you know, when they've studied this, how a movie is scored affects where we look on the screen. I know, I thought that was amazing. It was fascinating. Yeah. You know, so if a balloon is lifting up on then the, the screen, music goes the music up, goes up with it, and look we at look balloon. at the balloon. Exactly. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, really great, great moments in this film. But again, missing some of the great films. Was there any film you think should have been there? That you, I mean, like, I, I thought of Fantasia. Anything you thought should have been in there? This is the challenge whenever you make a documentary is what to leave out mm-hmm. because it was 94 minutes. The runtime was already getting kind By the of way, long for a documentary. did you feel it was a little long? Mm-hmm. And I felt, again, I felt that was an ed- editing issue. It's his first film. You, he's done an amazing job. The topic alone yeah. is so fascinating. And then when he interviewed the one man who then mixes the sound. Right. So you've now scored the movie, you've translated the composition, you've hired the studio musicians, and then someone has to go in and for every single track figure out if the French horns are loud enough. It's very complicated. But what the festival did too, after our screening, they arranged for a private tour. One of the professionals actually took you on a tour of a sound studio. Well, and I mean, what could be funner than that? Absolutely. And many of these composers by the way, have studios in their homes. You know, they do they do a lot of work there. I'm, I would recommend this film. It's coming out June 11th, by the way. He said it's going to get limited national distribution, and then he's going to put it out on on uh, D, you know uh, on Amazon. And one last thing that really moved me is they said that Hollywood is pretty much keeping orchestras alive. Yeah. They're the last big people to commission orchestras. When he said that, I thought he needed to take a closer closer look at that because one of the things that does sell out in in cities, L.A., Chicago, Seattle, New York, Miami, they all have symphonies and orchestras, and they also travel, and they are sold out. So I don't know if that's totally... You know, I just don't think there's the opportunity because gathering 200 people together to play in one day is a bigger deal than, oh, let's meet in the park tomorrow. You know? And our screening today was sponsored by the Winston-Salem Symphony. Oh, I didn't see that. Mm-hmm. We didn't see that last night. Yeah. yeah. Um, Rob Davis, the festival executive director, he used to teach film history. And he introduced the documentary with a great anecdote. I'm going to play a clip here. He's citing a 1939 Betty Davis movie where she was playing a woman dying of a brain tumor. So her eyesight begins to fail. She only has a few hours to live. And he discusses here the conversation she has with Jack Warner, the head of her Hollywood studio. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Here the final uh, scene of the movie. When her eyesight is failing, she has to climb a flight of stairs because she's trying to get upstairs to her bedroom. And so she asked Jack Warner, who ran the studio, and she asked the director, she said... Who's scoring this picture? And they said, well, we have Max Steiner doing the score. Well, of course, Max Steiner was known for a lot of sweeping, majestic film scores, and they could be quite loud. Uh, Gone with the Wind and many others uh, are attributed to him, and she was very frightened that Max Steiner would overpower her performance climbing the stairs. And so she looked at Jack Warner, and she said, Max Steiner can climb those stairs, or I can climb those stairs, but we're not climbing those stairs together. (laughs) The end of this is so great because fortunately for all of us, Mr. Warner said, no, we've paid Max Steiner already and he's going to climb the stairs with you. And in the end, 
Max Snyder was nominated for an Oscar for his score, and Betty Davis was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress for that film. So, on that note, I'll end and let's enjoy a documentary about the art and craft of scoring a motion picture. Thank you so much, and I'll introduce the panel afterwards. By the way, Rob has been, I don't think man's sleeping. <laughs> Because I've seen him at a million different uh, things that we've gone to. I want to say to him, I'm showering twice a day, but how are you so fresh? You know, he just is the best. And, you know, he's new. This is his first year with this. Really? Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't know it. No, he's only been here six months and he's doing a great job. Well, Rob Davis deserves his own theme song. Okay. I think somebody should Do you want me to make one. that? You want me to take care of that? Yes, please. Okay.